0: My friends, in the face of a pandemic, it can be easy to give in to despair, to believe that the best days are behind us. So to push back against that tide, we've created the 21-Day In Awe Challenge. I'd like you to visit me right now at readinaw.com. I'll say it again. I know it's early. Visit me right now at readinaw.com. Once you arrive, type in your email address, hit send, and then over the next 21 days, you and I are doing life together. There have been thousands who have gone through this process, and it is a cool reminder to stay focused on the things we can control, to continually move forward toward the light, and to recognize day after day that the best is, in fact, yet to come. So today, join me at ReadInAwe.com, and let's take the 21-day challenge together. Welcome
1: to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national bestselling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary.
0: Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Live Inspired Podcast with your host, John O'Leary. We have with us today an awesome guest, a remarkable story about courage, resiliency, relentlessness, faith, overcoming, achieving, and staying humble along the journey. Our guest's name is John Tesh. You are going to know him, depending on your age, from where you first encountered him. Some of you through E.T. He spent 10 years with Entertainment Today He has been in LA, he's been in New York, he's been in Nashville, he's been in Orlando, he's been in Raleigh, he's been on radio, television, incredibly successful guy, a phenomenal composer, a great author, as it turns out, and an even better human being. You are gonna learn, my friends, about how to move forward in spite of the diagnosis that you receive in life, and you're gonna buy into the truth that the best of your journey remains in front of you. Uh, I encourage you today to buckle up, open wide your mind, your heart, your heads, as we bring on a great composer and a better human being, his name, John Tesh. John, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
1: Thank you. I'm uh, I'm honored. I know a lot about you, and it's uh, it's a great honor for me to have a conversation with you. Thanks. Well, I grew up with you talking at me
0: on television. I've been listening to you now for a couple decades, so I feel like I know a lot about you too, John and then devouring your book over the weekend, not only do I know of you, I feel like you're my friend. So I want to share a little bit of that relationship with our our listeners today. You live in LA, but you grew up in Long Island. Talk about growing up on Long Island.
1: Yeah. Well, I was born in in 1952, and that was right when suburbia was in its nascency, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, actually across the country, but but certainly on on Long Island, where... uh, Men who were working in men who were working in Manhattan, right? And this happened in Chicago too. But men who were working in Manhattan, they would take the train, the uh, Long Island Railroad, home to places like Garden City, where I grew up, and mm-hmm. and so uh, a lot of a lot of these developers, uh, Levitt and a lot of those guys uh, put up these. Uh, they put up some high rises closer to the city, apartments, but also there were these cookie cutter homes in uh, in places like Garden City and Westbury and Carl Place, and and. Um, in fact, uh, Betty Friedan writes about this in, in the book, The Feminine Mystique, and she talks about the fact that back in those days, men were the breadwinners, and women, no matter what they did before they got married, they were thought to, they, they needed to quit their job, right? They were expected to quit their job and raise the kids. That, that was my mom, Mildred. She was a, um, she was a retired uh, surgical nurse, and so she was very highly trained. But she quit to take care of uh, me and my, my two older, much older sisters, 11 and 9 years uh, older than me. But those were the days, the, the, the halcyon days. And the reason I bring this whole thing up is that one of the problems with these cookie-cutter homes is that men, a lot of them, including my dad who was a World War II veteran, tough guy, he, he made underwear for a living. He, was, he, he worked for a Haynes Dine finishing company. And so when he would come home on the Long Island Railroad, my mom – would uh, would 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 know to pick him up at six o'clock? So she would make him a a, a Manhattan drink, mm-hmm. and then she would drive with one hand in the Thunderbird to the to the to the train station, and then he would he would get in, and she'd slide over, and he and she would hand the Manhattan to him, and he would drink it on the way home <laughs> while he was driving the car, and so it was uh, when he got home, you know, he was he was a little lit up, uh, and, and I, I think he still had a, a bunch of PTSD, and so that it really affected my my sisters, but since I was so young, I sort of lived in the basement. Yeah, you, you know, back in the days, yeah. like a Steve, Stephen King novel, you know, back in the days, your parents didn't even know where your school was, right? They would just, <laughs> they they'd stick you outside. And the rule was that when the streetlights came on, you they, then you had to come home. You describe your dad over uh, the course of a couple of sentences. I'm going to read it
0: verbatim. So here we go. My dad was strict, farmer strict. Southern strict, Baptist strict, and military strict. Dad had been a Navy man serving in the Pacific Theater during World War II, and you go on from there. So when you describe your dad like that, how does that affect this little boy, John, growing up in the basement?
1: Well, I didn't get a trophy for just participating, you know? It was— uh, my mom wanted me to be uh, uh, a pianist and, and, and also play trumpet. And so she was the one that arranged all the lessons. But my dad was – and, you know, it, I, I, real, I always thought that when I was younger that my dad was – I don't know, somewhere in my head I thought he was mean. Okay, that was the word that I had. and you know, He was mean, and, and he it really didn't engage all that much. But then I realized once I met his dad, who, who was – you know, grandpa who lived on the farm, that that's the way he was he was raised – but the fact that I didn't get trophies for everything and the fact that if I brought home a report card that had a B plus on it, he was like, where's the A? You know, I guess you can go two ways with that. I just – I tried harder because I, I was afraid of him and I respected him. But isn't it funny when you write a book where – and I've really only well, – I've only written a memoir once. And when you go back and you connect the dots, you're like – Wow, mm. I am so glad that my dad was so tough on me because if he and ultimately, and you will probably get into this, you know, he threw me out of the house, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was nineteen, twenty years old. So, um, yeah, he's a tough guy. I mean, he still showed up for the Boy Scout meetings and the camping and everything, but there weren't a lot of hugs. You've heard this story before. There weren't a lot of hugs, and there wasn't a lot of "I love you" and stuff like that. And my sisters really needed that. I just wanted to make radios in the, in the basement and uh, make movies hanging my cat from the, from the clotheslines, you know, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. You, you described some of the, the, the films that you made back in the day. We won't
0: unpack those now. We'll let people check out the book. I, listen,
1: I, I, I got to stop. I'm so honored that you read the book. You know, I, I've, I've done what you do through, through my whole life. And, and somebody will, you know, hand, whether you're doing an interview show for NBC or, or whether it's the Olympics, right? <laughs> people will hand you stuff and you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to read yeah. this? You know, so So I I thank you for taking the time to do that. It was
0: an honor. And I do that for all of our guests. And sometimes I yawn and drink coffee all the way through on yours, John. i really just enjoyed it. And I enjoyed getting to know your dad, better and for worse, and your grandfather, this tough farmer and the mistakes you made and the way he handled it. So uh, talk about Dr. Wagner. You don't write a lot about him, but I think he was probably a dramatic influence on
1: your life. Yeah, when I wrote this book, it it's what is it, two hundred and forty five pages or something. It, it probably would have been five hundred pages if the editors hadn't gotten a hold of it. And I and, and it's and it's good that they did because I, I went a little crazy in certain chapters like the Tour de France. The Tour de France chapter that you mm-hmm. read it, it was it was really it was the basis for how I became uh, a, a compositional musician, and so I really wanted the detail to be in there for the geeks, and that other people could you know just, just thumb through it, whatever. But it was longer than that. I mean, it was really like how to connect the wires and everything, and and I could do that with the Doctor Wagner ch- chapter. I love when I connected the dots uh, on my youth, uh, as as beginning at like six years old. I was in an elementary school, Stewart Elementary School, Stewart School uh, on Long Island, and the band teacher was Dr. Thomas Wagner. I didn't even know what his first name was until I started <laughs> writing the book. You don't know your teacher's first names, It was right. Mr. Wagner, right? They don't have but, one, or families. They just right, live up at school. Right, right, right. And he, and he just, he passed away uh, about, uh, not, not too long ago, about six, eight months ago, and he was uh, 94 years old, and reason being that he was just always in the music. Anyway, when we got to school, you know how when you're in your school and, and – and, where, where did you grow up? St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, St. Louis, right. So good school systems there, yes. But on Long Island, when I, when I was growing up in, in that school system in Garden City, I just thought that everybody was growing up like me, right? Why, why would I think any differently? Well, it turns out that I was really in performing arts schools, and that's mm-hmm. what happened at Stewart School. You get in there and Dr. Wagner <clears> – <throat> you have to make a list of the, you're either in the choir or you're in the band or you're in the marching band or you're in the orchestra. There wasn't a choice. Everybody had to be, or the theater, right? You had to check a box. And so I wanted to be in the band. And so they said, well, put down your top three instruments that you want. I think I put down like drums, drums, and uh, and guitar, right? And there's there's not really any drums in the orchestra. It's, it's, you know, it's okay. So it's percussion, but there's no guitar. And so they gave me a trumpet because they wanted like 40 trumpets. And it was a big school. But but Dr Wagner was this was this mad Tasmanian devil who would he would run around and go and go yeah, okay okay make a sound and we're like well we I just got this today what do you mean make a sound like make a sound make a sound let's go through it you know come on oh that's great that's great you know, bam like, okay now now for what's that Bang. okay move your mouth a little bit you know but we're, we're playing and within like a month and a half we were playing an Aaron Copeland piece and I'm that's not awesome. kidding and our parents would all come in you know and but he had this thing that he called the process come on work the process and what the prize? and a lot of people talk about it today right if you if you listen to you know any of these motivational guys right And right? maybe you've even talked about it is you know J- jocko willink you know the uh, the navy mm-hmm. seal you know it's all about don't think about the prize don't think about the goal don't think about the the end in mind just work the process and, and work that process every day and then wonderful magical things will happen and that's what he was he was like this super encourager and I realized when I went back and connected the dots on my relationship with him, and I got a chance to play for him yeah, when I was doing a Big Bang thing in, in mm. uh, Westbury. It was, it was so scary, it's so amazing at the same time. But when I look back and connect the dots, I, I realized that anytime I had any successes in my life, I, I was working a process. I was staying in a lane, you know? And so, and so that's what he taught me. Were you as passionate
0: about sports as you
1: were music? You know what's really funny is that you know in 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 the book I you know I mentioned that I got a call from the guys at CBS Sports when I was working for News saying hey why don't you come over here and work for us and I said I can't name three NBA teams, it sounds like hyperbole but I never really followed sports when I was a kid. The idea of of getting into sports for me was trying trying to be popular. I -hmm. wanted a letter jacket, right? Mm -hmm. So a, a letter jacket was really currency in junior I guess it still is the leather arms and the wool thing and then when you if you get you know if you get enough playing time then you get a letter that goes on there and if you get like if you get one you know the next year then you get a medal you know? and so I was way way too too thin and so uh, they couldn't insure me for football or basketball. And so I, I went out for, I was a high jumper because I had no um, wind resistance because I was so <laughs> skinny. So I was a high jumper and I played soccer. And I also, I also played lacrosse, which was insane because that's a rough sport. But yeah, so I was I ended up being a walk-on um, onto the varsity teams at NC State, soccer and and lacrosse, only because the teams on Long Island were just so amazing. And, and when I sat on the bench, that was really first string in, in college. So I loved the idea of, I think that's why I ran a bunch of marathons too. I like right. the accomplishment, the start and finish of training and and all that, because I was really average or below average at so many things. But um, but there was a long way of saying no, I'm not. I'm really not, I'm the sort of I'm the sports fan that sports fans hate. I you know, I like the playoffs and you know and that's it.
0: John, you you like the playoffs, but you also like the participation. You like being all in. You walked in as a freshman in college on a soccer team. It's really remarkable. You never played before. You talked and you wrote in the book about how you worked so hard and you stayed after and you had these visions of scoring and this drive, this drive. You quoted Leonardo da Vinci, ostinato rigore," something like this. This idea of stubborn rigor, tenacious application.
1: Where did that stubborn rigor originate for you? I just didn't have a choice. I wanted so badly to be part of a group. And I realized that um, the only way to do that was to take a beat-up soccer ball and kick it a thousand times every day against a garage door, or stay after practice and and pretend that people were, were defending me while I was dribbling 120 yards, you know, every five minutes down to the other the other goal. Um, it was all I had. I didn't have I didn't have the skills. And back in the day, you know, back in the in the 70s, soccer in America was really more hustle than it was what mm-hmm. you see now. I mean, think about Rudy. You know that great football story. Coaches love uh, kids who, and and they'll put you in, you know, just to put you in if you're mm-hmm. if you're hustling. And so I look back again. That was that was a process I must have taken from from Dr. Wagner, which was find a way in. You know,
0: you're suspended eventually from college. I'll let you tell the story of what happened, and and then the conversation <clears throat> with your father.
1: I wanted to go to a performing arts school, and so when I presented my father with. The idea, the idea for the schools, which was you know Berkeley and Interlochen and USC, and, and I even had a partial scholarship to Kansas State to uh, to uh, for composition. I was in my mind a serious musician, and because I lived on Long Island, there were some serious teachers that 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 worked with me. There was a teacher who who had studied at Juilliard, who taught me uh, trumpet and also uh, piano. For another teacher, and I, w- I was really a classical musician, and so. I had the chops to get into something, and my dad was just doing his you know, World War II Baptist you know, North Carolina thing. He just said, no, 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 no. You're not going to visit any of this stuff. I, I have enrolled you in North Carolina State University, and you are going to study textile chemistry. And so I lasted for, I don't know, about six semesters, six five and a half semesters, and then somebody recommended to me a fraternity brother recommended to me that I I take an easy A course to bring up my GPA so I could stay on the soccer team. And that was radio and television 101. And I got bit by that bug really badly. I just decided I needed to change my major, of course, without telling my parents. I went around to all my professors, and they all said, okay, we get it. Plus you're terrible at this textile chemistry thing anyway, (laughs) quantitative analysis and organic chemistry. So they, um, but my statistics professor, bless his heart. He said, no, you're past the drop ad time. I'm not going to sign this. It's against university policy. And so that was it. I, was, I, I would have had to wait another year. Went back to my dorm and one of my friends said, well, you're crazy. There's 120 kids in that class. You know, just do what I do. And I said, what's that? He goes, just sign your professor's name to the drop ad card. You know, and I tell this story on stage and you can hear people go, <gasps> <gasps> <you know? laughs> You know, <laughs> I because, was, I, when I read it, I was not in my head. I'm
0: like, oh, it I, makes I sense know. to me.
1: Right. Yeah, I know. It, it's, it is, again, this is 1973. You know? Right. And now it's just like, whatever. You got know, people have tape, rec- real, real tape recorders that they leave at the, you know, at the, at the lecture. Anyway, I, I was living living at home in the summers and working at Haynes and, and I was waiting for my report cards to come because everything went through perfectly. It was fine. And I get called into my dad's office, which is one of those, to, you know, office with the the smell of a cigar and a little bit of whiskey and the oak desk and everything, and he's holding a letter. It was a letter from the chancellor of the university who said, um, you've, you know, you've, your son has broken the honor code mm. at North Carolina, which I had, North Carolina State. We're giving him an F for the course, suspending him indefinitely. Uh, the professor has filed a grievance. I'm like the only guy that's ever done this. What yes. happened? Yeah. And so then my dad dropped a bomb on me uh, John and he said uh, he said listen you're not welcome in, you know you're you're a liar you're a cheat you're not welcome in this house you've shamed me you've shamed your mom's bridge club you just went on to this whole thing you know you've you've shamed you've shamed the underwear division of Hanes I'm thinking seriously <laughs> you know I didn't say that but I was thinking it you know so I uh, long story short well it was a pretty short story short because I got the next morning I was in my Volkswagen 1967 fastback with a pup tent on the top my boy's got a pup tent all my Jimi Hendrix records and. I headed off uh, back to uh, North Carolina State in Raleigh, and I didn't have much money. And I, paid, my mom made me a sandwich. My mm. mom, my mom was not part of this at all. Right, she was like standing by my dad. She made me a sandwich, and uh, and I, I pitched a tent in Umstead Park in in Raleigh, and um, I lived there for about four to six months, I think it was. And I I worked construction. I pumped gas at College Esso. And I, and I really wanted to just, like, drink beer, but I couldn't afford it. <laughs> so, so eventually I, um, I just I realized I had to get out of this situation. And that's when I made a crazy demo tape and brought it into a radio station in town. And, and a guy who I still stay in touch with, he felt sorry for me and gave me a little job, like, akin to sweeping the floors. WKIX? WKIX, yeah. And, and Rick Dees was there doing the mornings, and I, and I ended up uh, playing the religious tapes on Sundays. And then it seems like um, I got – most of my career was triggered by people showing up for work drunk (laughs) or hungover (laughs) because the guy that was supposed to do the afternoons on Sunday, um, he he showed up to to work, uh, uh, had too many cocktails. And so I was the only guy there, right? And so they they put me on and I ended up sitting in for him and then then I got the job. But the the demo tape that I did to actually get my foot in the door – I got into the campus radio station, and I made this demo tape, and I made all the noises, right? So it was like, this is John Tesh. W-. I had a, like a little, uh, like a typewriter, so I was like. A <laughs> This is John Tesh, WKIX 2020 News. Today, Dr. Henry Kissinger had this to say about the possibility of peace in the Middle East. And I would do. Correspondent Maurice Gindy has more from Cairo. This is Maurice Gindy in Cairo. Today, Dr. Henry Kissinger had this to say about the possibility of peace in the Middle East. I think there is a possibility of peace in the Middle East. And I, and I, used, I used to, on you know, my chest for the <laughs> helicopter traffic report, you know. It was insane. This went on for like 30 minutes. And when the, when the program director heard it, he was like, "If listen. If you want a job this badly, then I'll give you a job playing the religious tapes, you know? And so I just hung around, and then I got a, a, one thing led to another. I, actually, that's As, always terrible when somebody says one thing led to another, right? But in, in 36 months, I was anchoring the news in New York City, and I'm going, I don't know how the heck that happened. So, it's a fascinating story.
0: And you, you mentioned a part of my success is that others got drunk. They, you know, they, they showed up drunk. I, I think the other side of the equation is part of the success is you showed up like yeah, you, you, you go. shut up when it really made yeah. no sense yeah. to be in the room yeah. Yeah. no sense yeah. at all talk about that man because when i read this i'm thinking gosh if john can do this john o'leary can do it too and so can anybody else who's got a crazy dream of being on radio being on television being with tour de france w- we can set ourselves in a direction previously unimaginable but y- you got to be bold enough to yeah. move in the direction
1: yeah 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 i I'm, I'm i'm with you you and i are equally yoked in this and and Yes, there is advice to dig out of this, and, and and it is just show up. But it's also, a don't ever take no for an answer. Um, don't ever show up uh, at an interview with just a resume. Bring a whole presentation. I'm mm-hmm. sure you're given this, you know, the, you know all of that stuff. You know, getting into the campus radio station at uh, you know at midnight when I wasn't even a student and I probably should have been arrested. Mm-hmm. Sitting there with a reel-to-reel tape recorder and a, and a typewriter and a kazoo whatever you know but the guy at, at wkix scott white who by the way was with me about five six months ago when i got inducted into the national radio hall of fame because it was it was him that got me in there basically mm-hmm. but he said you know i saw the work you know i saw that you it wasn't like you felt entitled entitled about it for anything I, I i saw the work and it's also there's that chapter in there too about being found ready yeah, that's so important because my next job was, while I was doing the the, the news and washing dishes at you know at a, at a deli in Cameron Village in Raleigh, I got a job developing the news film. Now back in the day, for people who you know can't even imagine this, you had to develop the, the news film that didn't have any sound on it. A lot of it before it went on the on on television. So I'm that guy, and I'm developing the film. and uh, And what happens is, uh, I had a roommate, Bill Leslie who was also at WKIX, and he was always rehearsing, right? So he's always in the bathroom. I can hear him. And, and what he would do is he had this process of he would take the Raleigh News and Observer and he would, he would read a, a story. And uh, to himself, and then he would put it down, and then he would try to ad lib it into the mirror. Mm. I'm thinking, what are you doing He says, that's so I can do a stand up, so somebody can get, so a story can, can happen, and I can instantly I can memorize it, and then I can, I can ad lib it. So I started doing that, right? And I was doing that while I was d- developing the film, because there's a lot of timing and a lot of waiting and all the rest of that. So I was, I w- and I would take the, new- the news scripts from WTVD in Durham, which was where I was developing the film. And I would I, – I, they'd throw them in the trash bags. I'd p- I pick them out and I would, I would emulate what, you know, what I'd seen on the, on the air. So here I am in the – and people thought I was nuts. They thought I was like talking to myself or <laughs> whatever. This is before Walkman. You didn't have anything to put in your ears. You know, so you're just – you're doing stuff, you know, pretending to be people, pretending to be Jimi-, Jimi Hendrix, you know. So I'm doing that. And then what happens is some guy, the, the guy who was supposed to anchor the news that night at WTVD, he showed up drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, I guess it's a tough business I don't know uh, and so they I was the only guy under 82 years old John, and, I, I mean literally and so they said "Tess, you gotta you know it's like it was like the, the films you know where it like, it's like hey if you got a piano I got a barn and it was but it was uh, uh, do you have a sport cone I said no well, see, well, here you take Skip Carpenter Skip Carpenter <laughs> okay. was the, of course Skip Carpenter was the weather guy you know and so Skip, Skip gives me one of his, uh, his jacket, and he goes, you're on, you know. And so I go on there, and I didn't know how to read a teleprompter. There really wasn't a teleprompter at that point. I had to memorize the news and everything. I looked like a deer in the headlights. And uh, so I said, well, that was terrible. And, the, and, of course, the sports guy says to me as we're walking up, he goes, well, well you got through it, kid. That was, right. <laughs> that was his compliment, you know. So the next night, I show up ready to develop the news again, and he goes, hey, hey Tesh, you got a sport court? I said, no, it's, it's back home. He goes, go, go get it. You're on the air. And so... And I just kept thinking that the next night I was going to be fired, but but nobody else showed up. So I was, I was the anchorman, and I was washing dishes in Cameron Village at the same time. So I would clear the dishes, and people would look up and go, are you? No, it couldn't be. Right. <laughs> the anchorman is washing the dishes. But I was found ready,
0: you know. So I'm, let's play off that idea of being found ready. You go from Raleigh to Orlando, I may be getting this wrong, into Nashville, up to yeah. New York, out yeah. to ETV Entertainment Tonight eventually. In addition to being found ready, what do you think it was that led to that stratospheric rise? I mean, John, uh, there's not a whole lot of talent that have a journey like that. Yeah. What is it about John Tesh that allowed you to be found ready and to move from city to city, opportunity to opportunity, each time elevating your game along the way?
1: I think it was all, I think it all came out of that tent. Um, where I had, I mean, and I make the I, I make the reference to uh, Hernan Cortez, who burned his ship so that his, his his men would fight and not and not mutiny, and his line was, "If we're going home, we're going home in their ships." You know, it's finding a way when there's no way out. I think I think if that professor hadn't been honorable and and, and just looked the other way, the things would have been different for me because things would have been easier for me. So I I always felt like there was. I hate to say this because it, it can make people crazy, but I always felt like, like failure was chasing me, mm. you know? Uh, so I was always sending out demo tapes, you know? And I was always, like, when I got to Nashville, and part of it is that I'm a gearhead and I, 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 like, to, I like to learn how to use a bunch, you know, like, you know whether it's hooking up a camera or, or tape recorder. I mean, you know, I just finished an album mixed it myself only because I know how to do that, you know? But, but it was, when I got to Nashville, I learned how to edit video, and when I got to Nashville, you know, I was also a reporter and an anchor guy, but I was also recording music. So I, I recorded the news theme for that, you know, mm. for, for that, wrote the news theme for that, for that station. But after everybody went home, I was at the CMX editing machine editing my own demo tape because had I asked somebody else to do it, it would have been like, what do you, why am I doing this? Are you looking for a job? You know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I developed um, – there was, not a, there was not a vestigial creative bone in my body. I, I, was, uh, I was developing the skills, whereas if, if the news director had come to me and said, hey, listen, we're downsizing. We're going to have to let you – we're going to have to lay you off. They'd be laying off four people, <laughs> right? Because I was a reporter. I was anchoring. I could write. I learned how to write by watching other people. And I could edit, uh, edit video. and I knew how to mix sound. So that's always been my thing. I think it was because fear was chasing me.
0: You wrote early in the book that you're in Raleigh, you're, uh, you're making minimum wage or less. And yet every night before you go to bed, you say the Lord's Prayer. And then you say, five years from today, I am sitting at an anchor desk in New York City reporting the nightly news. So it's a twofold question. First is how important is visualization for where you end up in life? And then the second follow-up question will be how important was your faith back then to you?
1: Imagination, visualization, you know, visualization always sounds like such a new age word, but I still use it. But I really do believe that the secret to everything is to be a- is being able to see it before and really see it and smell it. And, and when I did that Red Rocks concert, <laughs> you know, where everybody told me, no, this is not going to happen. And even, even the rain told me, no, this is not going to happen. I would spend hours on a Stairmaster. Looking out, looking at one rock out out my, my window, and I had we had like a, just a little. Our workout place was just one stairmaster, and I would sit on there for hours and hours looking out there, and I could see I could see every single violin player, every single trumpet player. I could see the music, I could see the arrangements, and it took practice to do this, but it was very similar to seeing myself you know, on a news desk right up the hallway from from Walter Cronkite. It's so important to be able to have that image. And then as Lin-Manuel Miranda, who created Hamilton, said uh, on 60 Minutes once, and he's an old friend of ours, is you have to pick a lane. Mm. And you don't let anybody take you out of that, that lane. No matter what happens, you got to focus and stay in that lane. Now, my lane, and a lots of people's, has changed over the years. But, what, but when you decide what you want, you really have to stay in that lane. As far as faith, the Lord's Prayer... It's an old covenant prayer, right? But it was the only prayer that I knew. I was I was raised in the in the Methodist Church, and what I learned from going through, and I'm sort of foreshadowing the conversation, I think. But but what I learned going through suffering through a a, through a a cancer battle, and you know a a bit about suffering, is uh, I I realized that beyond visualization, beyond your imagination, you can actually speak your future into existence. I think it's Romans four seventeen. God who quickens the dead calls forth those things that be not as though they were Hmm. and that's even not knowing that scripture at the time that was the way i was behaving
0: man there's so much there (laughs) i think the pivot then naturally is into a woman who leads you into that faith into that visualization and into probably the best of your life and so uh some of us meet our spouses-to-be in bars or online or at churches or who knows where else. Right, right. You meet yours, of all places, a gym. So let, yeah. let's talk about uh, John meeting
1: his future wife, Connie, in the gym. John, th- th- those are my two favorite chapters. I think, I think the one chapter, you probably laughed through it because it, 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 was, it was comical. But it was also, it was just so bizarre because here's this guy who in 1991, who has just put his head down and gone from, you know, at that point I had an AP award for investigative journalism, which is mm-hmm. which is hard to get. I had six Emmys, you know, and I, I, had a, I had a Grammy nomination. And so I was, it was like, I was so full of, my, of myself and of accomplishment. And then I walk into this, I was, I, I had... <laughs> <laughs> you can see where this is it's going. It's so on, embarrassing. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed after, for you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back after this. Right? That's it. Phil Donnie who comes in and drops the mic at this point. Like, well, what right. happened? Uh, this is so much fun, by the way. It's great therapy. I had an assignment that I was doing for uh, for entertainment. Tonight. It, was actually, it was actually for IBM. It was like, it was like something you would do, mm-hmm. except it was just sort of goofier than what you do. Where I, I, it was a Fortune 500 company, and and Lisa Gibbons and I were like presenting ibm you know, because we were on <laughs> right. entertainment tonight. They were very goofy. But Connie Selica and Greg Evigan, and a bunch of people, Earl Holliman, they were shooting a thing called P.S. I Love You. The P.S. stood for Palm Springs. So my event and Connie's shooting were in Palm Springs. And so before I went to, to rehearse for the night, I had driven you know two hours from Los Angeles to Palm Springs. I just said, well, let me, let me just get the cobwebs out, and I'll walk into the gym and, and, and do something, right? And I walk into the gym, and right in front of me, is Connie Selica and and the, and the title of the, of the of this chapter is Helen of Troy on a bicycle. You know, it's, <laughs> it really was that. I mean, it was like, wow. You know, I just I mean, she had like you know, the the leotards on and the blue Nike things, sneakers and the headband. And She was listening to music and and I wasn't looking up and I just said, oh my gosh, it's Connie because I was a big fan of Greatest American Hero, hmm. and I, I get chills just thinking about it now. You know, that was twenty twenty eight years ago. I said, oh, gosh, you know, so I, I make a hard left turn to the gym. There's nobody else in the gym but the, but the two of us. And I had a white t-shirt with a, with a mustard stain on it, right? And I just threw my workout stuff into a bag. And I had, well, you know, my socks didn't match. And I had, my glasses had like a piece of gaffer tape on it because I had broken them. You know? <laughs> and so I, I, have, I see her at the corner of my eye. And she hasn't looked up from the digital display of the, of the bicycle. So I I don't know what, what came over me I, I jumped up onto the to reach the the chin up bar so I grabbed <laughs> I grabbed the chin up bar and I'm like my feet are like you know two feet off the ground and I realized that I, I haven't pulled myself up uh, 220 pounds up off of off of the ground since I was in tried to in high school and so I, I realized I wasn't going to do that so I just started swinging back and forth like I was you know stretching you know and then I dropped down from that. And then I, she still wasn't, uh, wasn't looking. And so then I got into the sit-up bench, the incline sit-up bench. I have size 15 feet. So I hooked my feet into those rollers and lowered my body down. And, and I realized it was too high, it was too big an angle. I couldn't get myself back up. So I had to like inch my way up and release my feet. And then I, I had enough. I just I got to get out of here because I'm just, you know, if, if she saw any of this. So I'm on my way out the door of the gym, uh, defeated. And then this voice goes, uh, John. John Tesh and I'm like uh, oh I turn I whip around like oh Connie Selica, I didn't see you there and then in that you know that Bronx brogue that she has uh, <laughs> Italian said like, we were the only two people in the gym <laughs> you know like that kind of thing and so we talked for a little while and I, I heard myself say hey I'm gonna be back on on Friday maybe we should get together she's oh, okay that'd be great so I went up to my room I had just released a tour de France album and I thought, oh, here's an idea. I signed the album and I, I, I called the bellman and I, I, I sent a little note saying, hey, Connie, if, if you, um, since you're riding a bicycle and listening to music, why don't you listen to music that was written for the greatest bike race on earth, the mm. Tour de France, smooth, right? And, it's um, pretty solid. and so uh, I said, I'll see you Friday, right? And then I went, took my, I did my job and everything. I took the limo back to, uh, to Los Angeles and then I just got a flop sweat and, and I have to make this long story short because I went to the research department, E.T., picked out all the research on Connie, and it was just like it was, it was, she was royalty. She was Hollywood royalty, and, and the little, little, little Johnny in my, in my head just said there's no chance. She's probably dating five guys at the same time. And so when I went back on Friday with my friend Chuck, you know, he said, hey, this is going to be great. You got a date? And I said, no, we never really – it never was really anything serious. You know, let's just go have a beer. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, yeah, just forget it. And so I convinced myself that I never made the date. Then, I don't know, about a, two, three weeks later, I realized what I had done. And I got, I got a number to try and call her. And I was actually working at Wimbledon, working with Jimmy Connors doing, doing the Wimbledon wrap-up show. And, and I would call from Wimbledon onto her answering machine and say, Hey, this is, this is John uh, Tesh. I'm calling from Wimbledon where I'm hosting. The, you know, I was so pathetic, you know, and she wouldn't take my call. And finally, I came up with this, this scam to get on another radio show. Somebody else's radio show, I was filling in for them and, and have the producer book an interview with Connie Selica. And, and, of course, when she picked up the phone, it was me. Mm. So I had my friend who was with me doing, doing that show ask her out on the air. And she's like, "Um, okay, John Tesh, all right. And we made a date and we sat down at a restaurant, uh, Giorgio Baldi in, in Los Angeles. and We talked for five hours and I was done. If I'd had a ring, I would have put it on her right there. Man. And, and, and it wasn't too much longer after that <laughs> that I did. Too. Correct.
0: So there's there's so much there. So the first question I have, a guy from Long Island, an athlete, a composer, a globe traveler, well-known voice and, and presence, what are you so afraid of? You're the, you're the one always in the front row asking questions already. I, I was surprised in reading that and now hearing it, that there was so much anxiety and so much self-doubt you had.
1: Yeah. It was the last time I doubted anything. <laughs> <laughs> I've realized, I realized how that destroyed me for so long. I was, I, was, yeah. I, was such, I was such a mess. I don't know where it came from. But what's really interesting is that we used to tell the story at dinner parties, right? Connie, Connie would bring it up or something like that. I was stonewalling. I kept saying, no, I never really made a, you know, made a plan and she had filed away that note and she, so, so now she produces the note mm. that I, <laughs> that I wrote, which is just terrible because it's clear that I was just, but so women, you should just see it. I mean, they want to, they, they just want to skin me alive when they hear this story. You stood her up because that's the way they, they reduce it to just, you stood her up on your first date, but then, but the guys, you made up for who, it. Who, yeah, exactly, I, and really it really was a lot of stuff that, that I mean, it wasn't just calling; it was like research and you know all kinds of things. And, but the guys understand that I had outpunted my coverage, as <laughs> they put it. You know, since you're doing therapy with me here, John, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's um, the, the bills maybe, in the mail, man. So I, I need to get your address, I, but it's on its way. Right? Out. Yeah, I, I, gladly, I glad, gladly. At least I do the check because I already feel better. But I think it's just one of those things where, and maybe this is why I've accomplished a few things. I don't display the trophies in my studio or whatever for whatever happened, you know. I'm still that sort of 8-year-old Johnny that's um, struggling through math and trying to find pants that fit because it's too too skinny, you know. I think, I think that, that that person is still in my head.
0: John, what was it about Connie that you were so attracted to? I mean, all you do, and I don't mean that in a negative light, is cover the greatest athletes and the greatest Hollywood stars in the world. So, what was it about Connie that you were so taken with?
1: Yeah, and that, that's a great question because uh, in the middle of this, I wasn't just doing entertainment tonight; I was doing a thing called one-on-one with John Tesh. Uh, it was a a daily one-hour uh, interview show for for the NBC network, and I w- and I literally was interviewing you know the the hot, biggest celebrities and the most beautiful women in the world. But there's something very, and still is, something very earthy and Bronxian about um, about Connie where she's incredibly cute and, and incredibly um, smart, but also really the funniest person in the room. I mean, she, she should be doing uh, stand-up. And we just laugh all the time. Mm. And there was just something about that that uh, that didn't come across in, on the bicycle. Of course, I loved the fact that she was, you know, she was killing it on the bicycle, and she was really fit, which is incredibly attractive. And I've seen her on television and all that. And so she was; it was larger than life. It was like, okay, there's Eric Clapton, and am I going to go say hi? Probably not. <laughs> you know, that's where that's the elevation it was for me. But when we but we ended up talking, and then she talked a lot about her faith, and I had drifted out of that, you know, even in, in in high school, because I had had it jammed into me when I was a, a kid, you know, church camp and memorizing scriptures and, and just, you know, here are the rules and, and all of that, and not really a relationship with God. And she, w- she obviously had had this incredible relationship with God, and she was in a attending a messianic congregation, which is Jews, Jews and Christians together, and it was really like a Bible study. And when she invited me to that, and I understood where her heart was, and also she showed me her heart where she was a single, you know, she'd been married before to Gil Gerard, and I had been married before, when she showed me... She honored her son by who Gib, who was nine, but she wouldn't let me meet him mm-hmm. until we were serious, you know that kind of thing. So she, she obviously had she had discipline, and she was an honorable woman, and all that came across in that conversation.
0: So unfortunately, we're gonna have to speed up the tape and bring you back some other time to talk only about Red Rocks because we could spend John hours,
1: yeah, unpa- I mean, yeah. Un- honestly, yeah. Man,
0: hours and hours yeah. and hours un- yeah. unpacking the dream, the vision the tenacity required and uh, the guts. The one,
1: the one thing I do have to say though, yeah. um, and this is really the, the reason I wrote the book is, and I would like to come back, is that the, you noticed that my cancer journey titrated in through the whole, through the whole book. Um, this whole imagination, visualization thing that we were talking about, I in the middle of my cancer journey when I couldn't stop the cancer, my wife and i discovered and this was this, with the same persistence and relentlessness that we both had behaved in you know in other things mm-hmm. we discovered something called divine healing mm-hmm. and, and a scripture that's mark 11:23 in particular which which basically says you will have what you say and when you when you discover what's in the scriptures related to healing you understand when, when when people read this book, they're going to understand, "Oh my gosh, I have been speaking death over myself myself." So I have to tell you that my dad was sixty three years old when he got cancer and died. I contracted cancer. The very same year of my life, sixty-three, and almost the same month as my dad. How did that happen? DNA is not programmed like that. Right. What happened was I spoke that over over myself. I was worried about it. I ruminated about it. I manifested it in my own life, and so that's the big that that's the big message of this of the, of this book. And we can there's some great stuff about how it relates to quantum theory and everything. But and I
0: I do want to talk about that. I. When I was planning our time, I I really wanted to learn the ins and outs of Red Rocks and what led to that and PBS and everything else and what came out of that. But to your point, this May 23rd, 2015 uh, date with cancer, how you handled it, what you learned, how you grew, like I I think that's what I want to learn a little bit more in the time that we do have left. So share with our listeners because they probably don't know what Gleason 9
1: tumor means and, and what it meant to you specifically. Well, first of all, you already know about this because you know about, about suffering and what causes more pain than, than burns over most of your body, right? It's all about, about suffering, but what happened for me and how you, how you deal with it, right, because life is suffering, what happened to me is I was diagnosed with a very rare form of prostate cancer and so most people go in and they get the PSA test for, for prostate, right? mine was clear i mean it was like a point 4 for 5 years but my my gp uh, steve galen was um was very thorough he insisted on doing the digital gloved hand test and he found he said well there's something very very different here you know and so what what was described as very different ended up through a sonogram and also a a, a biopsy as being um Tumors, six tumors that were graded as Gleason nines, and Gleason eights, and sixes. Now, Gleason it was a doctor who who established the way to to type tumors in the Mm -hmm. prostate, and so nine was the jackpot. I mean, nine means when you look at it under a microscope, look at the tissue. All of the cells are poorly differentiated. You can't tell the cancer cells from the real cells. And so I went through the, you know, we, we're connected to doctors anyway because of the health show the county does. It, we, we ended up at Johns Hopkins with, with almost like emergency surgery and then on to um, Northwestern and then and it started at UCLA and then at MD Anderson when the cancer kept returning. And then when we ended up finally at, at, at Cedars-Sinai, where they said, listen, we've, we have this very unusual test. Uh, it shows that, you're, that the cancer has spread to your lymph nodes. You need to come in here and we're going to talk about blasting your pelvis with um, 62 treatments of radiation in, a, in sort of a 3D format, just just your pelvis. And so you may lose, you may lose bowel function, you may lose uh, your urinary function, you may lose a lot of uh, sexual function. And at that, at that very moment my wife and i looked at each other and, and like the scene in when the when the messenger shows up uh, in, in sparta to try and talk leonidas and his bride out of something uh, we looked at each other and she raised an eyebrow and I, and I was done we had been studying for the last two years prior to that we had been studying um the scriptures that i was telling you about divine healing in mark eleven twenty three and proverbs eighteen twenty one, which is death and life or in the power of the tongue and at that moment, I realized that I was supernaturally healed because I had no more unbelief in my body. And like, and like Hernan Cortez, who had burned his ships, that doctor just burned my ships. I had no other choice but to have a faith for healing. And at that moment, cancer was gone out of my body. Not only that, but, but arthritis. I had terrible arthritis in my, in my ankle because I'd broken it so many times. And so what we do now is we spread the message of, what can happen when you've renewed your mind and you stop speaking sickness over yourself and and that it's all of that. A lot of the stuff that a lot of these um, uh, Mm self-help speakers speak, a lot of it comes right out of the Bible. And it's really funny, and they and they and which is fine. I mean, but, but they make it their own. It's like you know, speak Agreed. your speak your future into existence, you know. And so there, there's all kinds of studies that are going on right now about what happens when you when you speak words to a plant, for example, or to ice cubes, or you know. Uh, so there's there's a lot of now there's now scientific scientific data on this that people are taking seriously. Give us an
0: example, John, of what you might do for yourself, or what you might encourage your listeners to do to speak life. Because I, wow, I think the, the yeah. majority of us wake up, the alarm's buzzing, kids are whining, traffic's building, work's calling, time to go.
1: Yeah. What a great question. What a great opportunity. I can tell you what, what I do. And when I wake up every morning, and I, I, my, since I'm a process guy, I'm, I'm usually in the gym almost exactly at five o'clock in the morning. And, and sometimes I hit it hard. Sometimes I'm just sort of like, well, I'm at the gym. What else do you want? <laughs> you know, just standing around. But, but before I get out of bed, and, it, and it's always quiet, is... I decide on I can see you probably do this. I can see my whole day, mm. right? Then I just go into gratefulness mode and I just thank God and I do this I do vocally. I I'm, I go into my closet and I and I just speak gratefulness for for every, and and very specific, not only about about what has happened but about what's going to happen. And then, if there's an ache or a pain or whatever, I don't speak to God. This is the crux of everything that I'm talking about. I don't speak to God about my pain. Um, I speak to my pain about God. So, it's, in other words, uh, I'll thank God for taking the cancer from me, and I'll go. Hmm. Headache, this you're not my headache. You know, you, you you have to go in Jesus' name. You must go. You must leave. You're in, you're illegal. And there are many diseases that um, you know, experts will tell you are even demonic, like they'll tell you that, that arthritis is a is a demonic disease, alcoholism, things like that, and cancer, you know. And so instead of instead of becoming that thing, and I had become a cancer patient, that's another part of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you just have to continue to speak life and then and then you speak life over others. You know, you just lay your hands on your wife and you say, you know, honey, I just, I just speak life over you in Jesus' name. I speak life. And understanding what God's nature is too out of, out of Third John, which is, um, beloved, I, I wish that you would prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. That's so important because there's so many of us, including me, I thought God had given me cancer to give me uh, a testimony. And I was, I was wrong. God doesn't put sickness on people.
0: John, what would you say to someone listening right now that is kind of nodding their head thinking, well, I'm glad John has it figured out, but uh, he's got the great career. He's safe in his finances. He's secured in his faith. He's got a beautiful wife and children. He's got it all. I've got nothing. And so I got nothing to even begin in my closet to speak gratitude for. So for those of us who are on the bottom of the rung on that ladder looking up, what, what encouragement
1: might you give? I think a, a, a big part of it is, uh, is visualization. I think a big part of it is, you know, I have to tell you, I always thought that YouTube was of the devil, you know. It's like, oh gosh, cat videos and everything. <laughs> but there, there are some, including you. There are some great, there are some great speakers on YouTube. I love being mentored, but you can't call up everybody and say, "Hey, could you mentor me?" But you can, you can get it off of the YouTube. You know, you can, you can search Motivation Hub as one where you can have mm-hmm. Navy Seals screaming at you if you want. And then there's that thing of just try and, what was it, uh, Admiral Gerald McRaven, uh, who was the head of the Navy SEALs mm-hmm. here on the West Coast, who he, he gave that speech, it's entitled Make Your Bed, and it became like a huge 10 million book bestseller. You have to have a win every day, you know, you gotta have a win, and you may have to also change your friends when i got cancer uh, we lost some friends because they would they would all they would shake their heads when we would tell them about about how we were relying on on god's promise of uh, of healing or you have people who walk up to you and they shake your hand and they have that look on their face and they go how are you mm. which is also a good way of saying is the cancer has it come back yet mm. you know that kind of thing and that's the part of renewing your mind. Don't let anything, don't let any doubt, don't let any depression, don't let any of that stuff build a stronghold in your in in your brain. I think the real simple thing, because that's what you were asking for, is 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 find some find some YouTube collections where people who have and there are these guys that are great on Motivation Hub and and they've put like music, some of music's mind. They put some big music behind these messages. Do you use music on stage when you speak? So oddly, what I've started to do, and you probably don't know this,
0: is I am uh, I lost my fingers due to amputation as right. a kid, but my incredible mother, and she's listening right now to this podcast, my my mother insisted I relearn the piano. And so you're on the, a podcast oh, with that's... a guy that can't barely hold a cup of coffee to his mouth but can wow. jam a little bit of Coldplay or John Tash. And so what I love so I... playing the piano on stage now, and for me, it's uh, not only therapeutic and spiritual, but incredibly inspirational when the audience is making all the excuses why uh oh. they can't do something oh and then all of a sudden that same guy who's in front of them goes up and starts playing a song on the piano oh with no my fingers
1: gosh it's like a it's it's like a magic trick absolutely <laughs> but amazing. there's no
0: mirror there's no smoke it's real and it's the power of putting your mind to something bigger than the excuse you were making yeah.
1: Do you know, do you know Nick Wojcik? Have you ever run into uh, him? So I'm interviewing him next week for the podcast. Oh, yeah. He's, he's great. I mean, he, he shows these videos of him, no arms, no legs, right? Mm. He shows these videos of him swimming. Mm. Um, he shows videos of himself, and he does it on stage in churches. He climbs up into a chair, you know? And so, wow. By the way, Elton John's fingers weren't all that long, so you know, you're know you not going to get complete credit for this. I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's awesome. No one has ever thrown the name Elton John and John O'Leary in the same sentence ever, well, and now it's yeah, been done well, by John
0: Tesh. So I'm, I'm a big really, deal now.
1: I'm really impressed. Will you please come and play on stage and and, and tell your story to my audience? I would love it.
0: Anytime. Uh, you tell me when and where, and it's on. What I will tell your audience, though, before I hit the first key is to lower expectations for the piano. Okay. okay, so as uh, as long as they know uh, that they'll okay. be good to go. But yeah, I, I would love to. What, what as you look at your journey, whether uh, difficult parents, difficult upbringing, mistakes growing up, the various radio stations that you progressed through, stories with homelessness in New York City, everything you've been through, John. Looking back on the battlefield of life, what have you, what have you learned?
1: I finally got revelation for what one of my favorite authors, M. Scott Peck, wrote in "The Road Less Traveled." Now, if you haven't read, I know you probably have, but po- folks who haven't read The Road Less Traveled, the Washington Post decades ago called it a spontaneous act of generosity. That's the review of the book. But he starts off with life is difficult. That's the first sentence, and there's a period after it. And then he goes on to say, at the moment you, at the moment you understand that, you can start transcending it. Mm. And then if you listen to any of Jordan Peterson. And I, and I listened to some of him you know this morning he's he's rough he's rough on men mm-hmm. especially but his whole thing is please understand that because of the fall way back with you know with Adam and Eve this this world is suffering and if you're looking for happiness and you're not willing to go through the process you're going to be unhappy and that unhappiness is going to talk is, is going to turn into malevolence and he believes that a lack of uh, delayed gratification and a lack of embracing suffering is why we're seeing so much malevolence and actually suicide in uh, in young men, you know, twenty year old men these these days, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. So I think really just embracing the fact that life is going to be difficult and there's going to be so many hurdles, and if you just think of it as this amazing game where you're going to find a way above all that or at least through it, then you've really you, you really hold the key to it all. You are.
0: Such a busy man, so accomplished. You have a lot of things in front of you currently, professionally,
1: personally, physically. Why invest the time, John, to write a book? First of all, I think my pride got in the way because if somebody says, hey, if somebody, you know, Collins says, hey, we'd like you to write a book. And I'm like, oh, that's great. <laughs> okay, yes, you know, and then, I mean, you've done uh-huh. this more than I have. It's like you realize that it's 80,000 words and, it's, <laughs> and you actually have to use vocabulary words and people are going to judge you on that. And everything. and So it was supposed to take six months and they tried to ghostwriter, it, which didn't work because it just wasn't in my voice. So two and a half years later, I turned it in. It was really, when people say, you know, it sounds like pablum, but when people say, well, it was in God's time, it turns out it was because so much has happened to me spiritually during the time I was writing the book that I was just throwing throwing stuff out, you know, saying, wait, no, this is how I feel. This is what this is. Connie and I, and we, you'll love this. This is cute. The way I wrote the book is I wrote it on Google Sheets, I mean, Google Docs. Mm -hmm. And so I would write a chapter and then, and her phone was hooked up to the, to the same account. So then she would read that chapter to me out loud and, um, happened with every single chapter of the book. And I'd say, well, Oh, this makes, this doesn't make any sense. You say, yeah, right. And this, and she was with me through a lot of the high end stuff, but certainly cancer. And, and the, when, when our daughter Prima was in the uh, neonatal mm-hmm. ICU and making, taking the risk at Red Rocks, taking the risk of the r- radio show, um, you know, all of that stuff. So, we it was it, she became one of the editors of the uh, of the book but but we realized that this book can be a weapon for people who are suffering for people who need encouragement and for people who need healing and that's that's the purpose of, of the book and that that became my why and who is it that nietzsche who said yeah. uh, if you know your why you can endure anyhow and that certainly speaks to your life as well
0: john it's a gift man the book is called relentless it comes out february 25th 2020 I had the joy of pre-reading this early, read it again over the weekend, and was deeply inspired by your life, deeply encouraged by a guy who just keeps reaching for the next rung and bringing others along for the ride.
1: Wow, well, it's it, it's an honor meeting you, and uh, talk about encouragement. You know, isn't it isn't it amazing that so many of us we end up with a something bad happens to us and we crawl in a hole, and then you know something happens to you as a what were you, nine years, years was old? was
0: nine. And I, I yeah. think the difference is we all have reasons to crawl in the hole. None of yeah. us ever point, yeah. look down at those people because they have every right. reason to be down there. Yeah. And I think yet there's something beautiful when a guy has every right to be down there. And instead he's saying, come up where I am. It's beautiful up here.
1: Yeah, well, testimony is a powerful thing. and uh it's a, it's it's great hanging with you. I, I think I found a new friend. I appreciate it.
0: Well, you have a new friend. You also have a friend who's got seven quick rap fire questions for you as oh, we good. wrap oh, up I together. Oh, good. I love
1: these. Go, good, good. So, good. John, the,
0: the first question, they're called the Live Inspired Seven, and uh, I know of no one who's living more inspired than you are right now. So what is the best book you have
1: ever read? Uh, I would say it's a tie. The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck and Differentiate or Die by Jack Trout. Wow.
0: So I, I would imagine most of our listeners know the first. Talk a little bit about the second.
1: Differentiate or Die is really how I've lived my whole life, and I wasn't even thinking about it until you asked uh, the rapid-fire question. It talks about when you're looking for a goal – don't just copy somebody else, but, but find a way a way in by being different. Find, find out what's different about you and then use that in the marketplace. And, and again, I'll mention Lin-Manuel Miranda mm-hmm. w- who created Hamilton, which was so different, but it was part of his life. There's, there's also – oh, my gosh. There's one other book I need to mention. Austin Kleon wrote this. It's called Steal Like an Artist. <laughs> this is for – when you're talking about people who can't figure out what they want to do, how to take the first step without seeing the staircase – Steel, like an artist, sounds like a, a goofy book, but it's it's about how to decode greatness in others and find yourself. It's a great book. Mm.
0: John, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up on Long Island that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today?
1: I made great boats. It rained a lot on Long Island, and, there were, and we had gutters. Mm. I made boats out of... Uh, tongue depressors and and three by five file cards and i would sail from seabury road all the way down to clinton clinton road and i I could i had the best boats in the neighborhood and and i i tried to do it for my my grandson the other day and it sank
0: (laughs) that's awesome john if your home caught fire and your grandson your kids your animals your beautiful wife everybody's out safe and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item what's the one item you would come racing back
1: outside with Sadly, it's my nine-foot grand piano, and I think somebody would get hurt.
0: <laughs> Why that piano? What is it about that piano that is irreplaceable?
1: Uh, you know, you should really work for 60 minutes, Mr. Wallace. It's, I need to start de-
0: smoking and develop a deeper voice. Right. Yeah. But I will. I'll start. Yeah.
1: It's, um, it's been with me for so long. It's, it went on the road with me for, for the Red Rocks tour, for Avalon, for, for One World, and it's, uh, I've written... I don't know, two or three hit songs on it, things like that, you know, and everybody wants to give me a new piano and it's just, it's, it's where my grandkids are learning how to play. So mm. i I'd put it on my back and brave the flames to try and get out.
0: <laughs> what is the best advice you've ever received?
1: Get out of the bathroom and give somebody else a chance. That's what my, that's what my dad used to always
0: say. Outside of um, its direct meaning, tell me what it oh, means yeah. outside okay, of the bathroom.
1: Yeah, yeah, Actually, it came from Dr. Wagner, come on, everybody, let's make some mistakes. That's awesome. He, he would cheer that on when we were playing in the orchestra. We need that
0: cheerleader in front of us today cheering that exact same phrase out. Whether it's business, marriage, family, church, cancer treatment, come on, let, let's let's make some mistakes. Let's learn together and do better together. Yeah, amen. John, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to?
1: It would be the Apostle Paul because I'd want to know what that feeling was like when he was Saul and before he had the revelation and transformation after uh, uh, encountering Jesus. He was the guy who was killing Christians, and he became the guy who worshipped Jesus and what that transformation, what that revelation uh, felt like. One of his famous phrases is, I'm paraphrasing, "Why why should I be afraid of death? To live is Christ and to die is gain. I'd love to spend some time with. I do spend time with him every day, but I'd like. I'd like to, if, it's, if it was a bench. I'd, I'd love it. It'd be great. Mm. What
0: would you tell your twenty-year-old self?
1: Get a board of directors. That's a big mistake that I made. Where I was, I think my impetuousness ended up creating some some great jobs and some great success, but it also created yeah. pain. It created pain for my my, my ex-wife and myself. Um, it it's created some loss of money with creating bad businesses and things and and I, I got that advice once but I didn't I didn't take it. and basically what it means is it's not your family and you probably preach this yourself which mm-hmm. is find some people that you know that are older you know that, that have been through it and maybe even an, even an old uncle that's just probably as close as you, you should get to your family and just ask them if they'd be a member of your board of directors and just bounce stuff uh, around maybe maybe five or six people and and then take their advice.
0: John Tesh, it has been said, my friend, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
1: Healed and whole. Tell
0: us what that means to you, healed and whole.
1: Let me sum it up in one run-on sentence. How about this? Yeah. Mark eleven twenty-three. Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart that what he says will be done shall have whatever he says. Therefore, whatever you ask when you pray, believe that you receive it and you will have it. That's, that's the promise in that scripture. And when you get the revelation of that, then you get everything. Mm.
0: Brother, you are living the revelation. You are living that promise. And we thank you for living inspired. John Tesh. Well, thanks for joining me on today's Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, make sure that you rate and review us. It really does help to spread the word, and it ensures that people can more easily find our podcast. We are available for free. That's good news at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else that you are streaming your audio. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on what you've heard today and how to apply it in your life. We've got a lot of awesome episodes lined up for you in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be looking forward to welcoming you back next time.